Saying low, Apple Music. You're probably going to hear me say this all again in a few moments time, but just to kind of usher it in, welcome to a brand new podcast conversation with two of the most important creatives in my life. And I'm not alone. Millions and millions of people will say the same thing, but I get a chance to say it right here on my own behalf. Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. I don't know what it was as a kid that really drew me to their music in the first place. I mean, I was out there listening to my brother's record collection, a lot of Smiths, The Cure, Led Zeppelin, as well as, you know, Aretha Franklin, Joni Mitchell, records like that. But somewhere along the line, I got drawn into this world of Morris Day and the time, Prince, and then it was just game over after Prince. And then that all led me into Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis two incredible producers, songwriters, and artist whisperers. The kind of people you can put in a room with artists and they will tastefully draw out the greatest performance that that artist has to offer. And that's why people have queued up around the block for decades to work with these two icons. Fast forward to 2021 and the guest list is, as you expect, incredible for Jam and Lewis's first ever artist project. Volume one is everything that you want from a Jam and Lewis album. That production, those drums, those bass lines that act as a counterpoint to those incredible chords, the aforementioned performances they bring out of their friends. The whole thing is just such a beautiful, warm family experience. And a great reason for me to fulfill a lifelong dream, to have a conversation with Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis for the first time ever in my life. And it was just so great. I hope you enjoy it. My conversation with two of the most important producers and songwriters in the history of modern music, Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, right here on my podcast. Hey, Terry. Hello. Jimmy Jam. Yes, sir. You both look fantastic. Just refuse to age. I respect it. And uh, not just in terms of uh, physical well-being, but also um, creatively, you continue to make the most remarkable music. We're listening to an example of that in the background. Uh, you just draw magic out of artists. I don't know how you do it. I guess it's my job to try and find out over the next hour or so. So congrats, volume <laughs> one. You made us wait for it, though, fellas. You really made us wait for it. <laughs> <laughs> I guess my first question is, when the album was finished, when you knew that you had put all of the love and all of the juice into volume one that you could, and you got to say goodbye to a project at some point so we can say hello to it, how did you both kind of feel? And was there a moment of acknowledgement between the two of you that framed that experience of ending volume one? Well, we kind of always said that we would be done with volume one, whenever the label pried it from our hands. And that was kind of the way it was. Like literally they just said, here's the release date in order to make the release date. Here's what we need to do. So for us, I don't know whether we ever feel like anything's finished all the way, but we do feel like there has to be a deadline of some sort. So, you know, they imposed a deadline on us and so it was done, you know? But I mean, I think that's the way we feel, we feel about it. And, um, but we feel good about the album. I think we're excited. I think we're a little nervous we hope people like it we hope people understand kind of the intent of what we were trying to do with the record because it's all about the feeling of the record to me rather than it's technically right or technically wrong so but it's always been about feeling i feel everything you've done has been about feeling which is which is kind of a it's it's a distraction from how innovative you've been throughout your career and and how beautiful a, a grasp you have on the craft of writing songs and making music the feeling is always always comes first um, when I listened to a, to a Jam and Lewis moment. I wanted to just touch base on that vulnerability you just showed there and that, that answer about you know, nervous and, and hoping people appreciate it and love it, love what you put into it. I'm sure you felt that before working with other artists on albums and you felt their anxiety. But does it feel different when it's the two of you that are presenting this as a partnership and not in collaboration with an artist, are you closer understanding the anxiety you've seen them go through when they put music out? <laughs> I would say so. I mean, I think we feel that anxiety with everything because our thing is, is that we love the artists that we work with and those are our friends and, and, you know, we care about what happens on the other side of it. So we always have that little bit of trepidation going in to any project. Yeah. But as fans, we try to create, the music that we want to hear from these particular artists or any artist 
And then we hope everybody else agrees. So uh, I think there's always, you know, anxiety that goes along with that. So it's kind of the same thing, except our face is on the cover this time. That's the the, the, the right. biggest thing. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so you, it's just so funny to me. Two of the biggest show-offs in the history of modern production. I've seen the interviews. I know the <laughs> swag. And it just took you so long to get out in front of your own record. And yet you've always had this kind of charisma about the two of you, I guess, this is something that you probably always had, but really cut your teeth on when you were with The Time and with Morris Day, right? Because everything about that operation is about showing off to the best possible level. I think that goes along with everything that you do, like in, in life, man. Like if, if you uh, like I played sports like my whole teenage life, like any sports that had a ball and I call it a neighborhood sports. Right. You know, football, basketball, <laughs> right. yeah, baseball, yeah. you right. can get whatever one. you can play on the street and the pavement, you'll play it. Yeah, yeah. That's right. But yeah. that's where you develop that swag, you know, and that, that competitive spirit. Are you a tra- are you a professional trash talker? Uh not a professional, but but I'm certainly uh I'm not an amateur either. So <laughs> if, if if you if you want to go there, I'm like, okay, let's go. You know, because that's just motivation. Because it, it's one of those things, man, that drives you. Like like when somebody dares you to do something, it's like all right. Or they, or they tell you you can't do something that you you move that spirit into the rest of your life. It's like, oh, I can't do that. OK, that's exactly what I'm about to do. Mm-hmm. And so we've always kind of held that kind of uh, energy with with both of us. It's like the things that we weren't supposed to do, the places that we weren't supposed to go. If they told us don't go to this club, that's the club we're going to. If they told <laughs> us don't do this and you can't do that, you can't do this Christmas album in a couple of weeks. We get a, a, we do it in a week. I mean, it's always been that way. That leads us beautifully to the friendship, which is so important for fans of what you've created. Is is that sense of friendship? Like we know when creativity comes from friction, and we'll still take it. A great result's a great result, but it's 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 so much more beautiful when it's coming from a place of love, and so specifically focused on that point you just made Terry about. We will double down on the thing you tell us that we shouldn't or couldn't or can't do. And I wonder how the balance of the two of you plays out in those moments when it feels like us against the world. No, you shouldn't. No, you can't. You don't have time. Don't do it. How do you two show up for each other at that moment? What's the dynamic when it's like you need each other in that moment to get over that hump? Wow, that's a great question. First of all, we just feel like we always support each other. It's interesting. Our relationship is that we back each other up. We're with each other totally on on everything. But we also have the individual freedom to do what it is we want to do. And the foundation of that was literally when we first got together and started, you know, writing songs, we just did a 50-50 handshake. We just 50 percent is mine, 50 percent is yours. So Terry can go and do a project all by himself. And it's still 50% mine or, or vice versa. And, but what it does is it, first of all, it eliminates about 99% of anything you'd ever argue about. So in the creative process, when you, when you talk about, well, no, that we write a song and then you go, well, that's my melody. Well, that's my lyric. Well, that was my title. Well, that's my bridge. And, and like, you take all of that discussion out of it. It's like the song appears and there it is. But the other thing is, is our philosophy about it was always, not about being right or wrong, because it wasn't about an argument with us. We always say we never have arguments. We do have disagreements, and that's different, because an argument is something you're trying to win. And I don't ever want to win anything at the expense of Terry losing something. But at disagreement, you try to come to a, a solution. And so that's the way we look at it. So we always try to do things based on a solution. So when people told us we couldn't do something, we may disagree on how to get to the particular place. Um, like you said, even re- it results sometimes in arguments or whatever. It's the result that matters. But for us, it's not my way or his way. It's the best way wins. So if there's something we're not supposed to do, we may have different ways of getting there. But if we agree that this is what we want to do, then we just kind of figure it out. And whoever has the strongest opinion or the strongest feeling about how to do it, that's the way we go about it. I always feel that when creative chemistry descends into the semantics of who played what, who did what, who wrote what, that the song as a spiritual entity that shows up and disappears and shows up and disappears, 
is just shaking its head, like laughing, like you still don't get it. It's nothing to do with yeah, any that's of right. you. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, right? that's right. It's a spiritual experience, isn't it? And, and, I, and I feel like the two of you must get to a point now with this album coming out where you're closer to understanding the spiritual experience of making music and really what role you play in it as vessels rather than as protagonists. That's the way we've always felt. And, and we actually say, I mean, our saying about music is that we just feel music is the divine art and we treat it as such. We always feel like the songs, we don't really write the songs. God writes the songs. He just allows us to deliver them to people. And we felt that way, you know, back when we did Optimistic back in the day, that, that was the reason we wanted to do that song. We felt it wasn't what people wanted necessarily, but we felt it was what people needed. And yet that song found its way to a dance floor in Auckland where a bunch of 16-year-old kids, including myself, danced to it at the peak of the night and <laughs> waited for the DJ to play it. And it came from a spiritual place, but we were experiencing it in our own spiritual way. And it, it's... Right. I'm so glad you raised that because that song is such an important part of your journey. That was a moment where I felt like you, you came home. You were able to say, we can bring church to the dance floor. We, we have the confidence now to be able to really lean into spirituality and not, let's be honest, at the time, be judged by parts of society for doing that. It was a groundbreaking moment that and I'm so glad you started the album with them too. Well, and that was important for us to do also on our album, yes, to start with Sounds of Blackness. For us, when building our Perspective Records label, which was 30 years ago, and Optimistic was our first release, and the idea in our minds was, you know, if you're going to build a tall building, right, if that's going to be kind of the, the success or the look of success, before you build that 50-story building, you better dig that foundation, foundation one story. 100%. And that's what Sounds of Blackness was. And so on our album, that's the way we felt about our album and the reason we wanted to start our album with, with Sounds of Blackness. It was just a really important thing to do. But when you talk about, you know, things where people said, don't do that or you shouldn't do that. I remember when we did Sounds of Blackness, I remember because of the business involved, they said, you know, the A&M Records at the time, they were like, well, you know, that record's not really going to work. Like, why don't you bring us a Janet Jackson record? And we said, well, let us bring you what we want to bring you first, and then we'll get to that. We'll build to that. But let us, you know, there's a, there's a method to our madness, I guess I would say. And the, and the person that made us feel really good about that, and I'll mention his name because we just kind of shared a number one record with him recently, is uh, Herb Alpert. He sat in his car and listened to the Sounds of Blackness album. And I remember his office, his girl called from the office and said, he's going to come call you in a little bit, but he's still sitting in his car. And they said when he came into the office, he was crying. And he said, get, get me Jam and Lewis on the phone. And when he called, the first thing we said, of course, was we were like, hey, uh, Herb, we're most added in, in New York and we're blah, blah, blah. And he said, I didn't call to talk that bullshit. He said, I just want to tell you, I'm so proud to be associated with this record. I'm so happy you brought this record to us and you're trusting us to release it. And, blah. you know, he had a whole different attitude about it. And that made us realize that it's bigger than the business or any of those other things. Well, it's a song about faith. And so then you're telling us that you don't have the faith in this song, you've completely missed the point of the song. Right, right. <laughs> right. You know, it's like, it's all there in the music. Just trust the process and, and, and give over to it. You said something a few minutes ago about, on this album in particular, wanting to work with artists and, and bring, bring what you love about them as fans out. Now that, as a producer, and as producers in your case, as you know, is not always the path best traveled because you can sit there as a fan and say, I want you to do this. And the artist could be like, I am not there anymore. I am somewhere else altogether. And you have to suspend that passion and do what the artist ultimately wants to do. Right. And guide that process. So how was that bringing artists who have traveled far and wide throughout their career into a jam and Lewis album and say, this is what we love about you. Can you go there with us and trust us to do that? Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense, man. But I think, you know, we always try to live in a musical happy place. And spirituality is based on freedom, freedom to believe in whatever you want to believe in. And that's just part of it. And then the other part is agreement. So those two things go together. 
So we we always get in with an artist and figure out where they are before we calculate where we should go. But as a fan, we know where they've been as well. So we take those two things and we kind of do that that collision and get that happy place. And so everybody feels good about the situation. It's not like our way or the highway. Now, when I was young, maybe I thought like that. And in probably a lot of bad relationships, I thought like that, but never with music. Music was always a collaborative thing. But, you know, exactly when people tell you you can't do something like A Sounds of Blackness, when you know from your soul, from your spirituality, from your freedom, that that's the place to go to allow people to feel the spirit of freedom is to free them. So, hey, that's what we do. So, yeah, it all works together. Like I say, it's that musical happy place. Man. The other thing I'd say real quick is that we have, what Terry and I have is what I, I call the trust with the artist. I think the artists trust us. And we're at a point in our careers where we don't have anything to prove, but we have a lot to say. And I think the artists feel very comfortable in kind of knowing that. So they know when they're making the record with us, particularly our album, that it's not about analytics and it's not about algorithms and it's not about any of that it's about let's make the song that sounds the best for you and they trust us to kind of bring that out of them so i think a lot of it is you know we i call it the equity of credibility is what we have and that's the thing we have more than anything and that's something that builds up over years and years and years and years so when you call mary j blige or you call tony braxton or you call these people and they go oh yeah jamie Lewis, oh yeah cool they know they're going to be in good hands. And I think so then when we say, here's what we think we'd like to hear from you, they kind of trust us. But that was built up over years. We couldn't have done that 10, you know, 10, 20 years ago. We couldn't have done that. I wondered, you know, on this album, some old friends showing up here, incredible career artists. Were there times or one time specifically where you saw the light come back into someone's eyes that wasn't there when they first showed up that, that, because art is not always when you, where you need it to be. And when it comes back to you, it's the magic enters again. I wonder if you were able to see that change in someone and, and it was an emotional experience for everyone. I would, I would honestly say, Zane, I, I think we saw it in all of the artists, quite honestly. Because I think artists, Terry has a saying, a barber can't cut the back of his own head. And... What that means is, you know, Terry always says, we're like Nostradamus for everybody else. We can look at everybody else and go, oh, you should do that. You should do that. You can do that. But it's like, it's tough for an artist because they're always looking forward. Like they're trying to move forward and do what they do. But I know I'll give you an example. This Babyface is an example of that, where one of the, I got to say that the, the, not the proudest moments, but the nicest moments to me in making the record has been because Babyface, who obviously is the most accomplished person we know, <laughs> turned over the production to us. He just said, you guys go ahead and produce it. And so when we played him the final version of the record after we were done, he just said, man, that sounds really good. We said, no, thanks. And he said, no, that sounds, that sounds really good. And we said, well, you're Babyface. What do you think it's going to sound like? <laughs> but what we realized was when Babyface is listening to a record, he's listening for the mistakes, right? He's listening for all the things he needs to change and make it better. He's trying to decide which guitar part to use, which keyboard part. Should we put a bridge there? Should we put a modulation? He's making all those decisions. Well, he left all those decisions up to us. And I think what it was, it was the first time he had just heard himself as like, not a fan necessarily, but he didn't remember all of the work that went into it. And he got a chance to hear himself in a way he hadn't heard himself. And I think we got that reaction from, pretty much all the artists when they heard their finished songs it was like wow sean for boys to men cried when he heard the next best day because it took him back to all the things that were important about music you know modulations and good lyrics and full orchestra and live instruments and all of the things that was very important to boys to men but of course as you move on people tell you well no you should do it like this or that's too complicated or whatever but he just cried as all those memories came back and then realizing that he's sitting in the room creating with you know the guys that wrote can you stand the rain which was their audition song or yeah or the guys that it's the reason that they're called boys the men totally yes it took it took him back to that moment and that's the thing we're trying to do with the album we call it we call it nostalgia 
It's that idea of hearing something new, which you is that moment, that discovery you. moment. See, this is the thing about Jam and Lewis. People have to understand. Hold that thought, Jimmy Jam. People have to understand for a second that, that <laughs> there's so much talent on display here. People have completely underestimated the hybrid word, the hybrid word skills <laughs> of these two gentlemen. You invent things all the time. Nostalgia. What is the description of nostalgia, Jimmy Jam? Okay, well, it's that combination of, you know, new, which is always exciting, which is always that discovery moment, right? We all have those discovery moments of music where we discover a new artist, we discover a new sound, a new whatever that is. And it's exciting. You want to tell people about it and all that. But you also have that familiar comfort of like, you know, old songs that make you feel a certain way to take you back to a certain era that you love. So what we tried to do with the record sonically was kind of do that. So when you hear the Babyface record, it reminds you of why you fell in love with Babyface in the first place. When you hear the Tony Braxton record, L.A. Reid came and listened to the Tony Braxton record we did. And he just said he felt like a cavity had been filled in his soul where he didn't even realize there was a cavity because he hadn't felt that way about music and hearing a song like that. And he said, I think that's the best Tony Braxton vocal I've ever heard. So for that to come from him, who obviously, you know, him and Babyface discovered Tony, that feeling of the artist kind of falling back in love with themselves, I think that is the best feeling we could have. Because we're like the assist guys. We're, we're not the scorers, but we set the guys up for the assist, whether it's an alley-oop for a dunk, whether we set the screen and they can hit a three-pointer or whatever, a basketball analogy. But that's kind of the way we feel, and that's what we've kind of tried to do with this album. You know, when you talk about peers, friends, Contemporaries like Babyface, the artists who were discovered around that time by yourself, Babyface, the Teddy Rileys. There was a time, I feel, where modern pop music met black music, met the future, and, and a path was set. And I feel like that era in that time, toward the end of the 80s into the 90s, was one of the most essential moments in modern music but also for the black creative in modern music too, because you began to run the game. You know, looking back on that time now and, and seeing those contemporaries still continuing to move in their space and create, what are your thoughts about that time? And, and do you agree with what I'm saying? Do you feel like it was an essential stop on the road to success for everyone within your community? It's a good question. I, I do think it was an essential part of black music to the bigger community of music. But I think it's no more important than Motown or the Muscle Shoals movement or, hell, the British pop movement. Just I mean, it's all important. And when you say we started running things at that point, I think we just got accepted by more people just because the media got bigger. The opportunity got larger and got more accepted, and it kind of cross-pollinized things. I don't think it was, man, I, I like to claim genius and all this stuff, but man, there's no <laughs> genius to, to this, man. We just do what we do. We just make music, man, and people, everybody makes it a hit. It's not us. We don't make hits. We just make music. But the perception, Terry, was at the time that as a fan, that you were not just facilitating success. You were building and owning it and sharing it. That was the difference that it wasn't just your name with a credit on the back. There was a logo on the back. Well, well that's, yeah, that's, a, that's, that's a business move. Okay, that's great. You're, you're, you're absolutely right about that. But those come in baby steps because, you know, when you, when you just think back, you know, black people never owned black music until black people started owning companies. Mm. And, <laughs> you know, we started owning more and being visible more. I mean, you can say, like Quincy Jones wasn't really that visible and then he became visible and he inspired Gamble and Huff and Gamble and Huff inspires us. And, you know, it, it, it just moves on. It's just a, it's, it's just a necessity that just happens because more people get in the spirit of it. Who did that? It's, it's more of a question thing. So that with that, you get more power, you get more gas for your car, you know, but it doesn't make your car any better. It doesn't go any faster. <laughs> it's just, it's just a car you know, as an analogy. But yeah, I think black music became important just because more people were more accepting of it. 
And I think it just crossed over to places that people never gave it access to. But just as Motown music did back, you know, in the 70s and the 60s, it just crossed over. You know, we had to put white people on the cover, but <laughs> it, <laughs> it, it it transcended race. It didn't matter who you were, where you were. You just loved the music, you know, and then you had to market it in a way that was not really true. <laughs> it was, you know, it was kind of living a lie, but the music spoke for itself. You know, one thing I can say about the 80s and the 90s, a lot of wonderful artists, a lot of talented people. And once again, in those days, I think black artists got more freedom than they ever had, like in the in the new world, I guess, since the 70s, you know, because everything became very redundant and you have to do it this way from an A&R perspective. And even people just in the last 10 or 20 years. You know, they come to the studio and they say things like, yeah, that's too musical. And I just have to turn my head. I get that dog head on you and say, like, how can music be too musical? Do you do you really think that people are not that complex? People like a lot of everything. You know, there's good in everything. I love some country songs. I, I, I love some pop songs. I love some rock songs. Just to that point, I think time has become the currency. And I think efficiency is the ambition and speed is the goal. Time is the fuel. And when you put those three things together, you start to ignore the magic and you start to forget it's the journey and the process and the learnings and the growth and the, you know, applying yourself and trying new things. We forget that. So when people say it's, it's too musical, I always instinctively think like, Oh, you're in a hurry. Oh, I see. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, I get it. You want yeah, to, I, could, I, could, I could see that. You want to get there quick, huh? <laughs> right. or, you, or you just don't understand. My mother used to always say, you know, it, you, you only do what you know. And if you don't know much, you can't do much. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. yeah. Well, I don't know. I mean, I think it's, it's constantly evolving. I, I mean, I don't know whether I'm going to answer the question directly, but I do feel like upon reflection, the time that Terry and I grew up, if you think about, we had the influence of obviously Motown, as Terry mentioned. We had the great influence of um, of Quincy Jones, of Gamble and Huff, and we always say there'd be no Jam and Lewis without Gamble and Huff. But those were our mentors; those were our teachers. That's what we aspired to do: was to try to make music of that type of excellence. So that was kind of, kind of what we did. And then we got our ultimate mentor, uh, who was Prince. And growing up in Minneapolis. When Terry talks about country music and and rock music and all these different influences, that's what Minneapolis was. It was a melting pot of everything because we got New York influence, we got L.A. influence, we got Memphis influence, we got Detroit influence. We got influences from everywhere. And then when we had to play in bands when we were younger, you had to go no matter what you were playing. You could be playing a prom one day, a bar mitzvah the other day, a ski resort another day, a club the other day. And people are coming up to you going, hey, do you know Beer Barrel Polka? Or they're going, hey, do you know any Johnny Cash? Or do you know any whatever? So what it did is it gave us literacy in music. It also taught by playing those hit songs that people liked, not only as band members, but me as a DJ also in clubs, because I DJed in clubs. It taught us everything that we kind of needed to know about music and how to create music to fill a dance floor or music to please a crowd and performing. It taught us how to perform because performing in front of 50 people is much harder than 50,000 people, quite honestly, because they're right in your face. But that was the way we came up. So that was kind of our upbringing musically. We took all of those lessons that we learned and then applied those to the way we created our business and our partnership and those things. And we also then had the mentor, Clarence Avon, the Black Godfather pointed out to us when we started making music i remember we went into his office and he said what are you guys going to be doing in seven years and we said making hits and he said no 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 no." he said besides that what are you going to do he said are you going to get involved in politics are you going to get involved on the boards of companies are you going to get involved in charities are you going to who's going to be the next clarence avon the next barry gordy the next dick griffey the next lonnie simmons then you know the next whoever you got to think like that and he was the one that planted those seeds. And I'll never forget later on, you know, maybe seven years after that, 
I remember I got a call from the Grammys and they said, Hey, you should get on the board of the Grammys. And I was like, huh, really? And Clarence was like, better get your ass in there. That's exactly what I'm telling you. That's what I'm talking about. And I became the first African-American chairman of the Grammys, you know? So, you know, those kinds of things where those seeds were all planted and we just listened. So when you talk about, you know, at the end of the day, it's not black and white, it's green. And so when we did the jam, when we did control, it was a great, it was an interesting time at radio. Pop radio was very soft and very, all the rock groups were making ballads. And when What Have You Done For Me Lately came out, it all of a sudden had the attitude and the uh, tempo. And Yes. And we were lucky that, <laughs> right, we were lucky that the pop charts at that point looked at the black charts and they were like, where are we going to find some, some tempo? Because all the black records at that day were all crossover soft records that they were playing. But they needed tempo at pop radio. And we happened to be the album that was there. And they're like, what have you done for me lately? Nasty, control. That was the records. I remember watching those videos on video shows in New Zealand that we didn't have genres because we didn't have enough. Right. I don't think there was enough people who loved music in that country because the population is so small to be able to genreify. You know, it's like, it's all just great or it's not, right? It's like, that's right. why our number ones were so weird, you know? I would see like the videos from Control next to Cabaret Voltaire. Random yes. mm -hmm. art house, strange, abstract, industrial music. And it would sound <laughs> perfect. It didn't sound weird at all. But, and, and that's kind of, a, it was a weird introduction to your music for me because- in a strange way, you were making industrial pop records to me. That it's like smashing, like <laughs> smashing metal with like a pipe. Like it just, it just felt, it felt punk rock to me. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, I, I can do that. Well, you know what? I will say real quick about that too, because I just want to mention the name Steve Hodge, who was our engineer on all of those records, but. When we recorded Control, this is a perfect example, another perfect example. We had an engineer walk out on us uh, before we were started recording. And Terry and I just said, okay, we're never going to be at the mercy of an engineer again. We're going to figure out how to run, you know, work this stuff. And actually, when we were recording Saturday Love and all that with Sherelle, yeah. she was almost like the guinea pig in the studio at that point in time where we were plugging stuff in and blowing speakers up. And we'd be like, take your headphones off, Sherelle, while we plug this in. That's why all the things she says on the record, all the little bits of voice on the record <laughs> are so funny now because she's, you, can, you can literally hear just being like, hurry up. <laughs> yeah oh my god it was just like it was it was so crazy but when we recorded control we recorded it way too loud this is back in the analog tape days and it was because when prince recorded every time we'd look his needles would always be all the way in the red right so we figured oh we're going to record like prince so when steve hodge came up to mix control he came to minneapolis and we're all proud of ourselves he said who who recorded this and we said, oh, we did, we did. We're all proud of ourselves. <laughs> he said, it's recorded way too loud. And we said, oh, well, that's the way Prince records. He always puts everything in the red. And he said, yeah, but on Prince's tape recorder, the zero means zero. On your tape recorder, it means you're already plus six because your, your <laughs> levels are mixed for plus six. So you're way too loud. And we said, oh, man. We said, can we save it? Can we save it? And he goes, Oh, yeah, yeah. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. He said, but uh, I'm going to come up and teach you guys how to record. Wow. And the next time he came to town was humanly. So he actually taught us how to record on that on that album. I so, would just love the idea that this was this was one of Prince's little kind of private jokes that he that he somehow he knew you were watching him. So he thought, I'll just yeah, right. I'll really <laughs> fuck with these guys. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's that's right, too. Never thought about it like that. I didn't either, but you're, but you're probably right. But it's the reason that the record sounds so urgent. And that was the thing Prince said. He always wanted a little bit, he always wanted a little bit of distortion because your ears perceive distortion as loudness, even if it's not loud. But he always wanted his records to have that bit of edge to them so they always sounded louder to your brain. And that was the way Control sounded, you know, sounded extra loud to people. You know, your friendship and your, your, your relationship with Prince is one of music's most beautiful stories, you know, um, instrumental in helping you find your, your way forward, gave you the tough love when you needed it to go out on your own and said, you know, hey, you're fired. All right, cool. You know, and, 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 ultimately, <laughs> and ultimately led to a, a place of union and, 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 and love and respect. And, and so I, I've always wanted to ask you this, watching someone who was so infinitely gifted, in my opinion, probably the most gifted of my lifetime who ever picked an instrument up, who achieved such considerable success 
at the urgency of his talent, who then found himself trying to resist the constructs of that success brings. The, re the restraints that come from success, that money and greed influence. How challenging that was for you and how much counsel you could give him as, as friends during the times when he was himself wrestling with the beast? Big question. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'll first start off by saying that uh, I have a different take on being let go from the time or being fired, as people say, because at the time, you know, it felt like being fired. But in retrospect, it was being freed. You know, freedom is a big thing for me. You know, we've been offered so many different deals and situations where they wanted us to be exclusive. And we always say no. They put enough money on the table to make you consider it. But we always say no, just because our freedom is way more important than that. We want to work with who we want to work with when we want to work with them. Mm -hmm. So that was part of it. So the, the day that Prince freed us, I mean, while painful, it was the same day that we went to the studio, mm -hmm. the same night, the actual same night, and makes Just Be Good to Me, which was our first number one hit. Wow. So, <laughs> so you know, poetic justice, whatever. but. You know, survival. You know, when I look at, yeah, yeah. Well, I, yeah. I I look at it, but we already had it set up. It was already ordained. It was already spiritually set in motion. So he freed us to fulfill our destiny that was already set forth for us. So it, it was, you know, it was a beautiful thing. And over the years, we had disagreements, but we had disagreements in how you handle things. And you know, when you're the boss it comes back different to you. So you start to understand why people might do things. And certainly you can be critical of their decisions and, and their processes of how they got to the decision. But you have to respect the fact that he gave so many people. And if I sit there and count, man, it's got to be at least 100, 150 people he gave like an opportunity to just be in the game. But he put us all in the game. He gave us a respectable format that people could then point to and say, well, you were with him, then you must be okay. Yeah, and, right. and, and how many doors did that get us through? So with that being said, we were always cool with Prince, like I said, while disagreeing with him. But then, you know, up until his last days, I mean, I would go by and see him and sit with him and, and ask questions, answer questions. We got along divinely and there was always respect, you know, and, he asked me one of the last things he asked me, he said, he said, be selfish. What would you do with me? Because I think at a certain point, you know, he's he's like Jam said, you, you get into yourself, you lose yourself the, in the algorithms, in the whatever else people have set up now to estimate you. People don't know how to pick a record from their gut anymore. Now we have to do it based on all the other things that have nothing to do with the music itself. So he's lost in that sauce. And so he asked me, he said, well, what would you do with me? He said, be selfish. I said, man, I'll do a record. Like right now, he's like, your place or mine. And we just never got to that place. But the love and the dignity of and the creativity was always paramount with us, you know, and the trust. Because he knows, especially with me, I'm going to tell you the truth, whether you like it or not. It's going to be straight no chaser. I'm I'm just that way. I can't I can't help it. I just grew up that way. You know, I'm not trying to make you like me, but you will respect me. And right. we even even when I was his employee to some degree, we we went back and forth like that. So when when you need that kind of mentorship or that kind of answer or that kind of just friendship, we always had that. Because I called him, you know, it's like, yeah, what you going to do with your next album? What's going to be your distribution company? And he'd say, say little cute things like UPS. And I'd be like, oh, that's a good one. <laughs> Never thought about that. Uh, and, and then he would call and tell me, he's like, this Internet thing, man, is the Internet is the black hole. It's, you know, it's hard to get your money out. It's too hard to get paid. You know, so you're you're spending money to do things. You're creating these, this music. You employ a lot of people, and a lot of people don't understand 
they think music is free. It just happens. No, it takes a lot to create the music that we all love and, and revere and listen to and enjoy. So for him, it got to be a tough place. So he was relegated basically to a touring artist mm-hmm. because he didn't have a big company connect, collecting his royalties. And the big companies know how to go about collecting royalties. That's one thing they do because they have that, that muscle. So, you know, it's it's always been that push and pull there with with that whole scenario and that conversation and this is a friendship. But, man, what a beautiful friendship, you know, and I miss that man so much. Yeah, there's probably not a day that we don't go that we don't say almost think to ourselves, what would Prince do? Or we think would Prince like this in our decision making process? Would right. Prince be cool with this? Would he be like? He would want us to do it like this. So he's a part of our life every day. Yeah, that was his big thing to choices, Terry Lewis, choices. <laughs> right. What What are the choices? <laughs> There's a moment on this album, gentlemen, that just put such a big smile on my face. And it, it wasn't anything melodic. It wasn't anything of those magic Jammer Lewis chords or those drums or those things. It was a Morris Jerome. And I was just like, oh, <laughs> and I was just back. <laughs> I was back in that space where it was so playful and um, and it was fun and the messages were there, but you had to dance first before you learned, you know. Every time, you know, you, you, you get into a space where it feels like the time again. And I know you've been on stage and commemorated and danced around the fountain a few times in that space. What's it feel like? What's it feel like to be back in that outfit? Well, the time is really the foundation. It's our musical foundation for everything. Morris went to bat for us. Um, I remember when uh, he decided he wanted us to be his band, basically, because he actually came out of another band and decided he wanted us to be the band. Um, And I remember that, you know, Prince was kind of against it. He was like, no, you should use whatever, whatever. And And Morris was very adamant. No, no, these are the guys. These are the guys. So he was on our side from day one, and even through, obviously, the, the freeing or the firing, whatever you want to call it, he was always with us. And so the ability or the opportunity to go back and do music with him was amazing. But also, because him and Jerome hadn't done anything together for quite a while, so to put them together to do something and basically create, we really just wanted to kind of almost create like a monologue like they'd have on a film, yeah. you know, or in a TV show or something, but just put a song to it. It was it was amazing, man. It, it was just, I mean, some of the funnest times of our lives overall are always. I mean, I remember when we got back together at the um, the four of us. We kind of call ourselves the Final Four, so sometimes. But <laughs> yeah. when it's Morris, Jerome, Terry, and Jimmy, when it's just the four of us together. But we did the Soul Train Awards a couple of years ago. It was the funnest thing ever. And Babyface came out and and, and did and hit every step with us and, and came out. So those kind of moments, man, are just. They're, they're amazing to do. And, and Morris, we couldn't hold anybody in higher esteem than Morris, man. He's, he's like I say, he, he was very honest with us, too. One thing that was really important was back when Terry and I were producing other songs, back when Prince was telling us don't produce for other acts, Morris was very much for us doing it and actually told the rest of the band. He had a meeting one day and he just told everybody, hey, Jimmy and Terry are producing songs. He said, I'm going to take some acting lessons. This band's not going to be together forever. I suggest everybody go out and figure out what it is that you want to do. And he was very, he was very honest with everybody about it, which was, I love that. You know, you want to hold on to that magic forever, don't you? It takes real courage to realize that there's a time and a place. Now, nobody brings a ballad to life like, like you two. Nobody can make people who would normally outright reject the idea of crying over a lost love. Like, it's not it. I'm not doing it. In the eighties, I'm not doing it. And you just, Everyone did it. Can You Stand the Rain? Everybody loves that song. There isn't a human being on the planet who has heard that song that doesn't have a memory to that song. So my question to two of the architects is, do you feel it? Do you feel it? Do you get emotional sometime listening back to songs, either in the studio during the process or when you listen to them, or maybe they're on in the car when you turn the car on and it's just radio's doing its job and you hear that I know, I know, I'm in <laughs> Do you go, do you, do you, uh, do you get swept up it. in it? Do you? 
Oh, absolutely, man. Absolutely. I mean, I love those records, man. The new edition, man. And, and well, all those ballads that over the years and yeah. get swept up in them. But yeah, Alex, me, Alex, baby, Alex has a few as well. Let's be very clear. Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> Alex, the human league. I mean, let's, let's go all the way through it. But those ballads to me is, is they, they take love from a different point of view. Sometimes it's love lost, but sometimes it's love realized. It's like, what, what is love? And so you're asking that person in that particular song, you're asking a person, you say you love me, but it's easy to love me today because everything is cool. I got money. I'm cool. I'm, you know, we driving in a nice car, living in a nice Everybody house. Everybody loves but sunny days. Everybody, everybody loves, loves that day. But on that day where all this stuff is, is gone, it's just me and you. Can you be there for me? Yep. Everybody can relate to that because as much as you think you know, you'll never know until you know. <laughs> so everybody's asking that question daily. You know, and people change. People, people grow together and people grow apart. But you have this ability to take these everyday observations that often people don't verbalize because they are anxious thoughts and you really lean into them like no there's a pop song here there's an r&b ballad here there's a moment here out of this and it's you know it's 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 something really really incredible do you remember do you do you have focusing on that new edition moment for a second because i do think it's one of the greatest ballads ever recorded is there a memory that really jumps out in the during the recording of that song just to focus on one anthem out of many because why not that one was there a moment when you were making that song where it was like a special moment when you knew or something funny happened? Well, the song was uh, actually came out of that. I have to go back a little bit. When we first started working on that new edition album, um, Johnny Gillard just joined the group and the guys weren't all happy about it. So we had a kind of a psychiatry session before we even started working on the record. And we said, as everybody was sitting around the table, we said to Johnny, Johnny, you know, you're really not going to sing on this record at all because it's Ralph's group and, you know, we're not really going to sing. And we didn't know what he was going to say. And he said, that's cool. I'm a team player. You know, it's it's Ralph's group, whatever he wants to do, you know, so on and so forth. So it's like, OK, cool. So psychologically, that got everybody in like a really good place. Right. We didn't know what he was going to say, but he said the right thing. And what it did is it brought everybody together because we knew we couldn't start the record without kind of the elephant in the room. Right. We had to get that out of the way. Well, it turned out that Ralph and Johnny turned into the Mutual Admiration Society. Johnny would sit in whenever we'd be doing vocals with Ralph and just be totally blown away with his stamina, number one, because he could stay in there for five, six hours and just do the vocals and all the backgrounds and all that stuff. And he would go, man, I don't know how he can do that. And then Ralph would sit in when we do Johnny's vocal. And Johnny would just be in and out like real quick, but just would sing it fast and just kill it. And he'd go, man, I don't know how Johnny does it. So anyway, it's a perfect. So that was the setup for it. The idea of the song was if we're going to make a song that kind of introduced Johnny as a voice into the group. I always thought the song uh, by the by the stylistics, uh, what was it? The My Love. Right. So the first time we heard that stylistic song, I remember thinking who is this right i couldn't figure out who it was and then when i heard only you da, 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 i was like oh sh it's the stylistics so we thought that's the approach for this song so if we hear johnny gill we don't know who johnny gill is at this point you know we're, we're figure right and you hear on a perfect day you know then i can count on you you're that's like, oh, not ralph what is this yeah, yeah what right. is this <laughs> but then all of a sudden you hear Cause I need somebody. Yes, Ralph. And it's like, oh, it's new edition. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And we thought that was the way to do it. And even, and even, I will say, even the planning, like if it isn't love, was the most new edition sounding song. I think of the kind of bridge, right? Not my kind of girl. Then begin to introduce Johnny's voice in there more in the background, but doing some ad libs and stuff. And then kind of the clean the bases was, you know, can you stand the rain? So we plotted out even the way the songs were released and the order in which they were released to kind of introduce the people to it. I forgot about the bridge and if this isn't love and I put it on again about, I don't know, maybe two months ago I was diving through and I put it on and I was just reminded <laughs> about like the surprise and delight of that arrangement and, and, and just how you got back into, do, 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 into back into the, it's genius. My last question for you this time, because I hope there's a next time 
I hope so too. You know, when I hear damaged by her, I hear you. When I hear, I mm-hmm. hear you all the time. And so coming out of volume one, where is it? Where, where do you sit and stand on these artists that would probably chew off their right hand to get into a studio and experience that jam and Lewis, that, that, that moment, how do you feel about life after volume one? Well, the reason we call the album volume one was very specific. We felt it was volume one in a new um, book of our life at this point where Terry, as he said, we're, we're kind of selfish at this point. We're just basically doing everything that we want to do. We have nothing to prove, but we have a lot to say. So this is that kind of moment in our lives. But being that it's volume one, volume two, or as LeBron said when he went to Miami, not one, not two, not three, as far as winning championships, that's the way we feel about about the volume series. We're going to, uh, we were already started actually on volume two. There's too many artists that we love that we didn't get a chance to work with on volume one. And we have a long wish list that continues to grow and get bigger. So, you know, there's a volume two already on the way, and hopefully after that, a volume three, a volume four, so on and so forth. So that's, that's what life holds for us. And also the one thing we haven't done, when we went to the Songwriters Hall of Fame, we said there were three things. We never had worked with Babyface, so that was we accomplished that. We never finished doing our own album, so we accomplished that. And we never toured playing our own music. So that's the third piece of the puzzle. When things begin to uh, get safe for people, out there um we want to go and and tour and do festivals and just play our own songs kind of like a kind of like a virtual jukebox so so to speak wow okay i tried not to do it but i can't help it now (laughs) i had to drop one (laughs) hey this has been unreal this has been unreal for me. If you've, if you've spent your whole life building up to release this album, I guess I've spent my whole life building up this conversation. So, you know, I'm really, really grateful for the time and uh, for the continued joy you bring through your music and, and, and your natural God's gift. And looking forward to the next time. You already know. Hey, we're looking forward to it too, man. And Zane, thank you so much for all of your love and all of your support over the years because we can't do it without people like you to deliver the music. Otherwise, we're just like the tree falling in the forest that nobody knows about. So the music we make, if it doesn't have the people that love it and put it in front of people, um, but nobody does it with the respect and the reverence that you do. And we are forever your fans, forever your friend. And thank you so much, man, for having us. Conversation one around volume one. I will be right here waiting for conversation two as they get ready to release what becomes volume two and so on and so forth. Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, our latest guest in conversation on the interview series. Make sure that you follow these episodes and add a rating or a comment. As always, I appreciate your time.